Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor to connect with Chris Kresser, who is the co-founder of the California Center for Functional Medicine, founder of the Kresser Institute, the host of the top-ranked health podcast, Revolution Health Radio, the creator of the New York Times bestselling book, The Paleo Cure and Unconventional Medicine. Today, we dove deep into his background, as well as the role of bioindividuality, functional medicine, the impact of Bruce Ames' work, changes to our food nutrient density, why the RDA is inadequate, why synthetic nutrients are not beneficial, the impact of genetics, the role of mindset as it pertains to health, as well as measurable ways to improve neuroplasticity. And we talked at great length about his new supplement line, Adapt Naturals. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. It really was an honor connecting with Chris. I've been a follower of his for years, and he really is as gracious in person as he is online. Chris, it's so nice to connect with you today. I've really been looking forward to the conversation. Me too, Cynthia. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Absolutely. I'd love for you to start the conversation sharing a bit about your background and your own health journey, because I think it plays a large part in your open-mindedness and your willingness to you know, look at each patient as a bio-individual. Yeah. Well, going into the health profession was not my original plan in my early 20s in film industry, believe it or not. And I burned out of that very quickly and decided to take off all by myself for a couple of years. And about a year into that trip, I was in Indonesia in a, on a little island called Subawa surfing. One of the things that I was doing on that trip. And I got extremely ill with a tropical you know, at that time, unknown tropical illness and at death's door for several days, there was a, an Australian, uh, the only other Westerner in the village was an Australian guy who had some antibiotics in his medical kit that brought me back from the brink, but that evolved into a very long story, which I, I won't go into, but the short version is, you know, 10 years of a complex chronic illness that brought me to my knees. And, you know, there were periods of time where I long periods of time where I couldn't work or really function much at all. I saw probably 30 to 40 different doctors in at least four countries, tropical disease specialists, infectious disease specialists. And then when I wasn't getting answers, I expanded my search, puncturists, naturopathic doctors, energy healers, shamans, you know, pretty much leaving no stone unturned, you know, just to find some answers. And through the course of that search, there was no one particular thing that, you know, as is often the case in recovery that that made the difference, but certainly a nutrient dense paleo type of diet was instrumental. It wasn't really called paleo diet then, or at least was not as well known as it is now. And then, you know, functional medicine, which again, was not very well known at the time, but just this idea of getting to the root cause of what's happening instead of suppressing symptoms with drugs, which is what most of the very well-meaning doctors that I saw were trying to do. 
and I discovered some clinicians, you know, along the way that were in the functional medicine space or functional medicine adjacent, if you will. And that's what, you know, really inspired me to pursue this as a career myself. I, people around me saw what was happening and were curious and started asking questions. I realized that I could turn lemons into lemonade perhaps by, you know, taking some of my own experience and translating that into a way that could help other people. So I went back to school, got licensed, opened functional medicine practice and, you know, here I am more or less. There's quite a bit there that I left out, but that's the short version. Oh, those pain to purpose stories, I think are so inspiring. And I didn't even realize that whole other aspect, you know, when I do all my podcast prep, I spend hours and hours, you know, listening on other podcasts and doing as much reading as possible. And so I think when you go through a significant health illness, and you are searching for answers, it makes you profoundly empathetic towards the suffering that so many people go through. So let's really start there, you know, the the concept of bioindividuality, the concept of really personalizing medicine for your patients. How does that process look for you now versus 10 years ago? It's a great question. I would say it's it's only, you know, it, when I wrote my first book, Paleo Cure, that was published in almost 10 years ago, so 2013, and one of my mantras in that book was there's no one size fits all approach. So this has been a key part of my way of looking at things for many, many years. But I would say that that's only increased over the last 10 years. My appreciation for the importance of an individual approach has only grown as my clinical experience progressed. And as I, you know, started training practitioners that, you know, I left that part out of the story, but in 2016, we launched the ADAPT practitioner training program. We've trained 600 plus doctors and other health professionals in functional medicine and and my particular approach. And as the feedback, you know, from all the people that we trained, you know, I just developed a greater and greater for this. So we, we all do share a lot in common, of course, as human beings. And there are some things that are just going to be true for everybody. So for example, eating, you know, cheese doodles and drinking big gulps all day long, there's no human being that is going to benefit from that. You know, you know, we might be harmed to by that approach, but there is nobody that is to benefit from that. You know, so that's just one simple example of what we share in common. On the other hand, when you start talking about things like macronutrient calories should come from carbohydrates and protein and fat, when you start talking about supplementation, when you start talking about physical activity and approaches to exercise and movement, when you start talking about what stress management or stress reduction techniques are going to be best, those are all highly individual questions. And they'll depend on people's health status, their genes, their gene expression, their goals, their geography and climate that they're living in, their preference, so many factors. And so this is both, I think, the challenge and the opportunity when it comes to medicine is that you know, the way that our medical establishment is designed is, you know, we do randomized controlled trials on single interventions and control every other factor and assume that we're kind of just robots where like you just put in one input and everyone will respond in the same way, which is totally ridiculous and totally flies in the face of everything we know about human biology. And yet that we have this sort of mechanistic view of medicine and how medicine should work. It's very difficult design studies that take this 
bio-individuality into account because the complexity just gets overwhelming. And so, you know, when people ask like, where are the studies supporting functional medicine? That's one of the responses is like, it's, you know, there's a lot of, there are many thousands support the foundation of functional medicine, the mechanisms and the principles, but it's very difficult actually to do studies on functional medicine treatment because by its very nature, it's highly individualistic. That's what makes it so much more effective, but that's also what makes it harder to study with our current framework. I think that's a really important distinction and and one that, you know, obviously a lot of my work is focused on women and people are always asking, well, where are the studies? Where is the data, the research that's supporting some of the things you're talking about? And I have to point out that women's bodies are very complex. And so just taking into account the menstrual cycle, a lot of women were completely taken out of research because it was just deemed to be too complicated. Now, when you add in, you layer in you know, a functional or integrative medicine approach where we're looking at multiple variables, I completely agree with you that it makes it probably a little bit more challenging for researchers and it may not come to fruition because there's so many different moving parts that are contributing to whether or not an intervention is beneficial or not for that particular individual. I think there is there are some ways around that. And some of the best studies I've seen, for example, have just compared functional medicine care to standard care. So at the end of the day, that's what the patient cares about, right? You know, it's like, I have two options. I can go to my conventional doctor and do what they recommend, or I can go to a functional medicine clinician and do what they recommend. And so some studies have just looked at that, like, okay, let's take two groups of people and put them in these different camps and see what happens. And not surprisingly, the functional medicine patients who are treated with functional medicine often do much better than patients that are treated with the conventional therapies. But that does require just even a whole different paradigm of understanding how we might set up research studies and do them because it's shifting the focus away from a single drug intervention, which is again, what most, you know, randomized controlled trials are looking at to something that's much more inclusive and comprehensive. Do you find that most practitioners that you're interacting with either in your programs or outside your programs, are they open to the possibility that a lot of what we trained with is not fully embracing the beauty of what makes each of us unique? Or do you feel like there's still some degree of significant cognitive dissonance? With the practitioners I've trained? Yes. Most of the people I train come into the program with some, with openness to this perspective, or they probably wouldn't be there in the first place. You know, of course that can vary from by degrees. You know, we've had people come in from very conventional you know, background as ER docs, for example, and they're pretty new to functional medicine. But being an ER doc is something that really opens your eyes to the failures of the conventional model. You cannot be an ER doc and not see what is wrong with the conventional model because you have people using ER as primary care because they're not able to get the care that they need. You have people showing up with you know, late stage complications from type two diabetes. And most of these ER docs are thinking to themselves, well, geez, maybe we should intervene a little bit earlier so that they don't end up in my ER bed, you know, with needing to have their foot amputated. So I think almost everyone is aware of the shortcomings of conventional medicine and the strengths, you know, that I get hit by a car, I want to go to be taken to the hospital and take advantage of all of the incredible trauma and emergency medicine thing, you know, treatments that are available. And, and there's some just incredible diagnostic 
procedures that have been developed in allopathic medicine that we use all the time in functional medicine. And so I'm not saying there's, you know, a conventional medicine is bad across the board, wrong tool for the job when it comes to addressing chronic disease. And I'm encouraged actually by what I've seen over the past five years, especially, you know, there are a lot of new startups like Noom and SteadyMD and Salvo Health and uh, clearing and these companies that are embracing a functional medicine approach, they're not actually using the term functional medicine per se in their marketing because not enough people still really know what it is, but they're, they've set up their entire business model with a functional approach. So clearing, for example, is a company that is dedicated to offering non-pharmaceutical approaches to chronic pain management. And they use CBD and a bunch of other therapies, but their whole mission is to get off of these opiates that can be so addictive and so harmful. Salvo Health, which I'm a board member of, is creating a series of clinics that are taking a functional approach to specialty. Their first one is gastroenterology, but then they have a plan for a women's health clinic and a cardiovascular clinic. And it's a combining health coaching with an app and you know education and training for patients and a doctor. So there's these really that are now like, you know, venture funded and they're raising a lot of money and they're, and they're making waves and they are based on this new approach that we're talking about. So I, it's not all bad news. I think it's, there's some really exciting stuff happening. Absolutely. And I just want to echo what you just said that, you know, I applaud my traditional allopathic trained peers that are doing emergency medicine, urgent medicine, trauma, because the United States is just about better than anywhere else in the world you know, one area of medicine that I personally was able to see that we're really not doing a fantastic job in, in a more traditional sense is prevention and then chronic disease management. So I echo a lot of what you're saying, and it's exciting to see all the, you know, the ideas that are coming to fruition for different ways to manage chronic disease, to manage preventative disease, and to do it in a way where we're integrating, you know, kind of not, I don't want to use non-traditional, but you know, whether it's acupuncture, whether it's meditation, I mean, so many different ways to address chronic pain and other issues that people are experiencing. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs 
in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water and you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. A great deal about our focus on everyday wellness is on supporting gut health. And one of my new favorite ways to recommend to family and friends and even clients is to consider colostrum. And so Equip Foods has an amazing product that helps to improve immunity and gut health and recovery. And each scoop contains grass-fed, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free colostrum. And if you're wondering what colostrum is, it's a nutritional powerhouse that serves as the first source of nutrition for mammals in nature. It's been shown to enhance immune function, gut health, and recovery with vital nutrients such as lactoferrin, growth factors, and prolon-rich polypeptides. Colostrum is a natural milk-like fluid produced by mammals immediately following delivery of the newborn. And while colostrum is a dairy product, it does not contain milk or lactose. So most people with lactose intolerance usually find colostrum very easily digestible and beneficial to gut health. You can use one scoop a day. You can mix it in things like coffee or mix it in shakes or even yogurt or even some of your baked food recipes. As I mentioned, has a lot of health benefits, including research demonstrating the improvement in a reduction in inflammation, promoting good gut flora, and supporting restoring leaky gut to normal permeability. And what I love best is that Equip Foods is very ethically focused. Their cows are humanely raised and ethically treated, and cows produce an excess of colostrum when nursing. So only after their babies get what they need are they able to source the excess colostrum for use in their products. There is three grams of colostrum in each scoop and one serving in comparison to main competitors has just one gram. And research demonstrates that this dose of three grams actually promotes more benefits to gut health, immune function, recovery, and vitality. So if you'd love to take care of your health, you can go to www.equipfoods.com slash Cynthia20 to get 20% off your first order. That's www.equipfoods.com. E-Q-U-I-P foods.com slash Cynthia 20. You definitely want to check this out. Now it goes without saying that the impact of nutrition is profound. And I know you've had your own journey, you know, going from a macrobiotic vegan diet into a more ancestral health perspective. When I know when you're working with clients, everything is tailored, but where are you right now on the, the nutrition spectrum? Are you still leaning into a more ancestral health diet? What are some of the things that you're integrating into your day-to-day? Yeah, probably now more than ever, because over the last five years, the big aha for me has been recognizing the role that nutrient deficiency plays in chronic disease and poor health, shortened lifespan. I really 
did a deep dive into Dr. Bruce Ames's work. He's a professor of biochemistry, I think, at UC Berkeley and has done some pioneering studies in this area where he has a one of his series called triage theory, which is the idea that all proteins in the body can be separated into two groups. One is uh, survival proteins that are needed for short-term survival. And the second are longevity proteins that are needed for you know, all the processes that help us to live a long and healthy life. And his research shows that when we don't get enough of the roughly 40 microns that we need to function optimally, then whatever nutrients we are getting are diverted into survival functions first. That makes sense, right? The body always prioritizes immediate survival over everything else. And since the processes in our body essentially compete for the same proteins, if we're getting less than the optimal amount, then those are going to go towards survival functions and not towards longevity functions. Longevity functions are not just about extending our life. You know, those are things like conception, you know, having a baby, <laughs> like if the body's survival needs are not being met, then there's not going to be anything left over for conception and, you know, raising a baby to full term, a healthy pregnancy that can be blood sugar regulation. It can be sleep. It can be, you know, a healthy hormone balance. It can be cardiovascular function. It can be all the things that don't contribute to staying alive, literally like in the next now and in the next few days or weeks. And so you know, over the course of my nearly 15 year career now, I've treated thousands of tested literally every single person that comes through my door for nutrient status. And I do a bunch of different kinds of tests. So we do blood testing, we do hair analysis, we do urinalysis, we do saliva testing, we do buccal cheek swabs. We do depends on the nutrient that we're testing. And that's very important. And then we use an app called Chronometer, assess their diet for three days and cannot be measured in any body tissue or fluid, like calcium example of that. And I would say in that 15 year period, probably count the number of people that did not have nutrient deficiency, scans, which is just remarkable when you think about it, because my patient population, it's very motivated. You know, these are people who listen to all the podcasts, they read the books, they read blog articles, they're doing a lot of the right things. Most of them are already on a nutrient dense diet. And still, even with all that awareness, I was just seeing nutrient deficiencies pretty much every day in the clinic. And then, you know, I started me being me, the research geek nerd, I started to dive into the scientific literature on this subject and, you know, just found over and over most people are not getting enough of the nutrients they need. Now, so I just want to be talking about over true clinical deficiencies like that lead to diseases like or berry or rickets or pellagra. Thankfully, rare in the developed world, it still happens in the developing world. What we're talking, Bruce Ames calls nutrient inadequacy. So a frank deficiency that's going to send you to the hospital today, you know, permanently alter your function necessarily. It's enough, but it's not getting the optimal amount. And it's enough to divert those nutrients to the survival proteins rather than the longevity proteins that we want to nourish so that we can, you know, achieve all of our health goals and live a long, healthy life. Once this sort of light bulb went off for me, prized, frankly, that more people weren't talking about it. I was sort of looking around going, is this something like, what's going on here? Like, why isn't this a bigger topic of discussion? Because it's so prevalent. Like if you look at the statistics from Linus Pauling in 
many of your listeners probably know Linus Pauling is two-time Nobel laureate, brilliant minds in science and nutritional science in particular. And the Linus Pauling Institute has published, you know, summarized data showing that hundred percent of Americans don't get enough potassium, probably over 95% don't get enough magnesium, 94% don't get enough vitamin D, 92% don't get enough choline, 89% don't get enough vitamin E. I could go on, but you get the idea. Like it, we're not talking about a problem that affects, you know, a handful of people. We're talking about most Americans and probably most people in the industrialized world not getting enough of most nutrients. So that's where my focus is now. And you know, I'm happy to talk more about that, but it just strikes me as like one of the most critical things that we can discuss, not just in this interview, but I mean just in the larger health conversation, because unlike some other problems that we're facing, this one has a pretty simple solution. I'm not talking about like reversing environmental, you know, air pollution and water pollution and addressing the problem of glyphosate and the food supply or, you know, like dealing with sleep deprivation, which is a result of a whole bunch of complex involving, you know, screens and people being busier and two income families. And like, those are really hard, complex problems to solve. Like what we're talking about here, solvable problem, and it's pretty straightforward. So, and I think it could end up having massive impact on the burden of chronic disease. So again, I'm sort of looking around going, well, what am I missing here? Like, why isn't this a bigger topic of discussion? I think for listeners, what is it that's changed about our food to impact nutrient density? I think that's, to me, something I knew a little bit about, but in preparation for our interview, I now know a whole lot more about, but you're a fantastic resource on this. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so there are a lot of challenges that we face in the modern world that make it really difficult to meet all of our nutrient needs from food, like our ancestors were able to. I mean, obviously our ancestors were not taking nutritional supplements. That's absurd. And they weren't even thinking that much about what they were eating. They were just eating what was available in their environment. But there are you know, five or six reasons that I think are really important to understand in terms of how things have changed today. The first is different changes in soil quality. So the easiest way to think about this is it's not so much that the amount of nutrients in soil has declined over the past hundred years. It's that the plant's ability to extract those nutrients from the soil has changed. And that, again, and you use another analogy here, it's because of, we've disrupted the microbiome of the soil. In the same way that antibiotics disrupt our gut microbiome and cause changes that make it harder for us to digest and absorb nutrients, which by the way, is one of those causes that I referred to, we've disrupted the biome of the soil with pesticides and fertilizers and other chemicals that have had that same impact on plants' ability to extract nutrients. And that has, you know, multiple downstream effects. So first of all, when we eat those same plants, you know, those plants don't have as many nutrients as they did even 25 years ago. When the animals that we eat, eat those plants, the same thing is true. They're not extracting the same amount of nutrition from those plants. So we, you know, eating an omnivorous diet where we're consuming both plant and animal foods, we're getting hit on both sides there. So one of the studies I read that, you know, this is something I'll never forget. It was just such a shocking piece of data was that we would have to eat eight oranges today to get the same level of nutrition that our grandparents ate, got from just one single orange. That's two generations. That's an enormous change in two generations. And then we have, you know, like data from uh, the US shows that 
there's been a decrease in magnesium levels of 25% just between 1940 and 1991. In the UK, that decline was closer to 35% over the same time period. So the exact decline will differ from region to region uh, based on the soil there. And, you know, 1991 is more than you know 30 years ago now so if i'm virtually certain that if we were to get updated data that decline would be even greater so i think that's you know number one cause is is changes in soil quality let me just take a step back and say too that i'm assuming we're having this conversation with the assumption that people are eating a healthy diet <laughs> but of course that's not as safe as in the us like 60% of calories now come from ultra processed foods which are virtually devoid of nutrients. So I would be remiss if I didn't point out that that is by far the number one reason that people are nutrient deficiency. You know, garbage in, garbage out. But I know your listeners, Cynthia, are not in that boat for the most part. So we're having this conversation assuming that people are eating a relatively healthy diet. The second cause I think is really significant is the shift from local organic culture to an industrial global food system. So as you know, Cynthia, as soon as you take a vegetable or out of the ground, it immediately starts to lose nutrients. And the problem with that is that the average carrot that somebody buys at the grocery store and eats has been shipped for almost 2000 miles before it gets to the grocery store. During that time, it's in a dark truck, then it's stored in a dark warehouse. It ends up you know, in the back of the grocery store in the dark, and it's losing nutrients throughout that entire process. And that's true of vegetables, it's true of fruits, true of all the that we eat. And, you know, even in our grandparents' time, that was unusual. Most food that people ate came from the local place that they were living. And, you know, and if they lived in a place where they there wasn't any produce over the winter, often canned their own produce, you know, from their own gardens or from farms that were local. So that's another profound shift in just a, a relatively short period of time. A third reason is the rise of chronic disease. So we know that six in 10 people now have a chronic and four in 10 have multiple chronic diseases. And chronic disease affects nutrient status in two ways. The first is it increases the demand for nutrients. So chronic disease is a stressor on the body. And when the body's under stress, it actually has a greater for nutrition. The second reason is that many chronic diseases decrease nutrient absorption or production. So for example, people who uh, struggle with obesity, they produce less vitamin D in response to exposure to sunlight than people who are lean. And then they also absorb less vitamin D from any food that they eat than people who are lean. I mentioned earlier that disrupted gut microbiota leads to decreased nutrient absorption. And that's an epidemic now, thanks to antibiotics and NSAIDs and hormonal contraception and poor diet and tons of other factors that have disrupted our gut microbiome. So we get hit with that double whammy of chronic diseases. And, you know, there are more, I'm going to stop there because I've been talking for a long time, but I guess the last, so I'll say one more environmental toxins. So, you know, we have heavy metals like mercury, lead, arsenic, cadmium that are ubiquitous. Now, unfortunately, in, in food supply, we have glyphosate, BPA, and other organic and inorganic toxins that are very commonly found in our foods now. And the problem with these toxins is that they bind to minerals, typically. And that new complex of mineral and toxin can't be absorbed 
and utilized by the body. And, you know, like if calcium is binding to one of these toxins and we're not going to absorb it and utilize it as calcium. So that's another problem that our ancestors didn't face to, to the extent that we're facing today. So I think those are probably the four biggest ones. I think it's really interesting because if you look at, you know, the RDA, so the recommended daily allowance for these minerals, it's woefully low. It's not even in a therapeutic range. And so, you know, why is it that the U.S. government hasn't caught up with all the research and the compelling information that we're discussing? You know, I I would imagine that big ag has a lot of pressure that it puts on regulatory agencies that, and it's probably a larger discussion than we could have in the context of an hour on a podcast, but letting listeners understand that, you know, the recommended daily allowance is woefully inadequate on top of all of these other factors. Yeah, that's a great, and there's a lot to say about that. I'll start with, you know, when the RDA was developed, which was during World War II as a way of just making sure that the rations that we were giving our soldiers were enough to meet their basic nutritional. Again, this was wartime. This was not like trying to answer the question, optimal amount of nutrients for optimal health. It's like, how do we give our soldiers this war? Those are two very different questions, right? I think that's pretty obvious. The second critical thing to understand about the RDAs is that they're based on several different factors, including age, and sex and light, you know, what particular health status and life stage. So for example, the RDA for calcium is different for a pregnant woman, an elderly person than it is for a younger person who's not pregnant. And that's true of, you know, virtually all of the nutrients. And we can use uh, magnesium as a good example because the RDA for magnesium was last updated in 1997. So that is almost 25 years ago, right? And so that RDA, it says that for a 31 to 50-year-old adult male, he should get 420 milligrams of magnesium a day. And then a, a female that same age group should get 320 milligrams. But those RDAs were based on a formula that included average body weight. And the average body in 1997 for a male was 120 and 66 pounds, and for a female was 133 pounds. Now, just last year, researchers published studies suggesting that, hey, wait a second, average body weights have gone up dramatically in that period of time. So shouldn't we be like reevaluating some of these RDAs based on that increase in body weight? And they focused on magnesium. So they redid the RDA and the new body weights, the new average body weights were for a woman, 169 pounds. So that's an increase from 133 pounds in just 25 years. And for men, it was 196 pounds up from 166 pounds. So a 30 pound increase in 25 years. And when they recalculated the RDA for both of those groups, they found that instead of 320 milligrams per day for women, it should be between 470 and 535. And instead of 400 for men, it should be between 575 and 660. So those are massive increases in the, what the optimal amount of magnesium should be. That's not the worst part. The worst part is that the average intake of magnesium today for us adults is 340 milligrams for men and 260 milligrams for women. So they are falling short. Most people are falling short of the old outdated RDA 
And they're falling like 200 to 300 milligrams short per day of this new, more accurate RDA that reflects the optimal amount that we need. And that's just one example of magnesium. You know, I could go on down the line with B12 and folate and all of these other nutrients that are critical for our health and well-being. And the RDA is just, like you said, woefully inadequate as a measure of how much of each nutrient we should be getting. It's really interesting. And I can certainly state that 16 years in cardiology as an NP, almost everyone was low in magnesium and it provoked palpitations and arrhythmias and cramping. And so one of the things that we did almost with every single patient was they were taking magnesium. And I always say that's probably the one electrolyte that I'm most knowledgeable about, but what are your thoughts about synthetic vitamins? You know, this is another side of this issue is that the processed food industry has created a lot of synthetic vitamins that they've embedded in our processed foods. And I would imagine these are also woefully inadequate and oftentimes probably not even readily available for the body to be able to use. Definitely. Yeah. I, I would love to answer that question. And I will. I just, I thought of one more thing that I want to add regarding the RDA that's really problematic. And it's not even on the rate, like what I just described to you in terms of updating the RDA based on, you know, changes in body weight and other factors that's discussed in the scientific literature. Like I just mentioned a study that, you know, purposely reevaluated the RDA based on that factor. But one really important factor that is less commonly discussed is nutrient synergy. So we know, and you know very well, Cynthia, that nutrients don't exist in the body in isolation. Most nutrients require other the presence of other nutrients, which are called cofactors in that situation, to be adequately absorbed and utilized. So going back to magnesium, we know that magnesium requires vitamin D to be absorbed in the intestine. So imagine a scenario where someone is miraculously getting enough magnesium, even you know with this new RDA. Well, I just mentioned earlier that 94% of people are deficient in vitamin D. So somebody could be getting enough magnesium on paper, but if they are low in vitamin D, they're not going to absorb that magnesium in the intestine and they'll still be biologically deficient in magnesium. And the same as, you know, iron's a great example. Copper is required for iron deficiency. I've needed over the years who've had iron deficiency anemia, their doctor just kept giving them more and more copper. Nothing was happening, or excuse me, more and more iron. <laughs> Nothing was happening. We test them for copper, find out they're copper deficient, and then just give them a little bit of copper. And all of a sudden their iron deficiency anemia goes away and improves. It even works the opposite way for vitamin D. Vitamin D requires magnesium to be activated. So someone could be taking vitamin D supplement, getting enough vitamin D, but then if they're magnesium deficient, they're surgically deficient in, in vitamin D. And so I think that's actually a good segue into the question of synthetic nutrients is a lot of times the synthetic approach doesn't take this nutrient synergy into account. Whole food naturally, this is the amazing magic of nutrients in food is that foods often contain the very cofactors that are needed to absorb those nutrients and well-designed supplements do too but a lot of the synthetic products that people are taking do not. And so they might have high levels of an isolated nutrient, but then none of the cofactors that are required to absorb those nutrients. That's one problem. Another problem with synthetic nutrients in some cases is that they're a foreign form of that nutrient for the body. And the body doesn't recognize that nutrient as well, or doesn't convert it well into the, the form that we want. 
and problems can arise from that. So folic acid is a good example there. This is a nutrient that has been prescribed particularly to you know women who are trying to conceive or who have already conceived because it, uh, folate can prevent neural tube defects. Still, something that happens way more than we would like to admit in us, you know, the richest industrialized country in the world. And you know, for some women, they won't have any problem converting folic acid, the more active forms of folate that we need. But there is a substantial subset of the population that doesn't do that conversion very well. They have genetic polymorphisms that impair their folate metabolism. Uh, some people have heard, of course, of MTHFR and you know some of these polymorphisms, and they end up with a lot of unmetabolized folic acid. And there are some studies that suggest that unmetabolized folic acid can increase the risk of cancer. So, you know, these are talking about, they're really important to understand. And especially in the supplement industry, you know, oftentimes it's like the cheapest, let's load this thing up with the cheapest ingredients available so we can make the most money. And you walk into like GNC or Costco or someplace like that, you know, that's often what you're going to get. And, you know, that's problematic because supplements can be incredibly useful and helpful, but they can also be harmful if they're, they're not taken properly. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients. And it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness. 
I think that's a really important point because we we have a a methodology and a mindset as a culture that a supplement's going to fix a lifestyle issue before we even think to change the nutrition, before we think to lean into sleep and exercise, et cetera. And, you know, I'm the first person to say that supplements can be incredibly therapeutic, incredibly valuable, but we also have like a diet weight loss culture that has convinced us that like the hot new pill potion powder is going to be the one thing that's going to yield weight loss. And so we've got a mindset of, you know, pills and supplements fix everything. And yet I think we need to be very attuned to being, you know, quite astute or really making good choices based on our own unique needs and that bio-individuality piece, especially MTHFR. I'm actually homozygous. So I have Mm -hmm. two copies of A677T. And so for me, it's been interesting navigating the supplement world and then having to be very attuned to those synthetic vitamins and recognizing that they may not be the best choice for me personally. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I the way I put it is you can't supplement a bad diet or lifestyle. Like I don't care what supplements you take, how many supplements you take. It's like building a house in quicksand. You know, there's no foundation there and it's going to have that same result. On the other hand, if you have the foundation of a nutrient-dense whole foods diet and you're taking good care of yourself, you're getting enough sleep, you're or you're or at least you're making efforts in the area because nobody's perfect. You know, life is full and busy and hard, and most of us have a lot going on and is but a solid foundation. Smart supplementation on top of that is going to amplify your effects and your benefits. The way that I think about it, and I just tell my patients flat out, like if you're not doing these basics. I want you to put all of your energy and attention in that area first. And then, you know, like then we can kind of layer it, you know, because I think then supplements can be helpful in getting people to feel better, have more energy, and then they can turn that energy into a little bit more physical, maybe starting meditation practice. And there's a upward spiral to get there, but you have to have that foundation to begin with. No, I couldn't agree more. And I know a lot of the focus of your work is on the role of mindset as it pertains to health. And so, you know, neuroplasticity is one example for those listeners that are maybe not familiar with that term is that you can actually change your mindset, which will actually rewire aspects of your brain. But let's kind of pivot and talk about that. I do want to come back to the supplements because I know you have this amazing new line that I, I do want to focus in on. But if we're talking about all these lifestyle changes that we're encouraging people to do, it really requires shifting our mindset and our focus. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this this is, I think, probably the most exciting development in medicine and our understanding of health in the past 50 years. I mean, that's a bold claim, but I, in retrospect, especially later on, we will look back on neuroplasticity and the understanding that we're getting from uh, about how the brain and nervous system work as a major turning point in our understanding of health and, and well-being and the body and how it functions. So for people who are not familiar, neuroplasticity basically refers to the fact that our experiences, so this could be our thoughts, our emotions, our behavior, and our life experiences actually change the structure and function of the brain. So in a way that can be measured, you know, by a brain scan. And this is actually a concept that I think most people are familiar with, even if they don't know they're familiar with, you know, a good example would be learning anything new. When you first learn to drive, 
you had to pay really close attention to what you, you were doing. You know, you're, you're hand, both hands on the wheel. You're really like thinking about every choice that you're making and it's awkward and it's unusual. That's because the connections between the neurons in your brain that are related to driving have not been formed and they've not been strengthened. Over time, the more you drive, the more those connections get strengthened. There's a saying in neuroscience, neurons that fire together, wire together. The more that you make those connections in the brain, the stronger those connections get. You can think of it like pipes or, you know, like a network. It's like the more information is going through those particular routes, the stronger those connections are going to be. And they're literally going to get bigger and thicker. So then, you know, 20 years later, when you're driving, you're not thinking about it at all. You're just sort of, your brain knows how to do it. And you're just kind of on autopilot. Hopefully you're paying attention, but you're not like thinking about it in the same level that you were when you were first learning. And good news and bad news, because neuroplasticity, I often say is a double-edged sword. This like when we develop bad habits or things that are contrary to our health and well-being, that also gets wired into the brain. And then we have to take steps to create a different pathway that is healthier. But this speaks to why things like gratitude practice and cultivating more joy and pleasure in your life, spending time in nature, changing your, you know, if we have often, many of us have this just negative self-talk tape that plays in the background of our head all the time. You know, sometimes it's, you know, those neurons are firing we're having that self-talk, those neurons are firing, those connections are strengthening. And again, we're not talking about anything woo-woo here. This is like hardcore neuroscience that can actually be measured and observed. So if we can learn to change our thoughts and we can learn to change our behavior and channel that our thoughts and behavior direction that is more conducive to health, then our brain will literally rewire itself in response to that. And you know, we are much more likely to get the outcome that we desire. I think it's really important because a lot of what you just talked about are items that don't cost anything that we can do easily. Meaning if we are just connecting with nature, I'm in a new part of my state and there's less people, there's more nature time. And I've observed as well as my husband and my kids that everyone's just much more relaxed. There's less traffic. And so not everyone per se may be able to get out of where they are, but I do think it's important to understand like before we start adding in gadgets, because let me be very clear. I, I love gadgets. I love having an aura ring. I like having, you know, all sorts of things that measure continuous glucose monitors, et cetera. But starting with the basics that cost little to nothing is really starting a really firm foundation from which to work from. I don't know if you have thoughts about a lot of the technology that people are using to track metrics and sleep and steps and other things. It's useful when it's useful and then it's not is kind of how I would describe it. Like you, I have you know experimented with and used a lot of these technologies and let's take the aura ring for as an example. Like I've been a big fan. I've used it in my practice with patients. We've used it in our clinic with programs that we've designed for first responders, like the Berkeley Fire Department. We used, we set them all up with war rings to help them track their sleep. And it was like a revelation for a lot of them. It was so helpful. But I found myself, like I don't wear my ring anymore because I basically, after a few weeks, kind of came to understand what the things were biggest difference for me and my sleep patterns. And I could predict with like 
95% plus accuracy what the report would say in the morning based on just my own understanding of my body and how it works and, and you know, what inputs make them. So I think that's a good example because these technologies have often a window of usefulness and that window can be longer or shorter depending on the technology. But what I'm not crazy about is when the technologies begin to distract people from the things that they actually should be doing to, to, to promote better health. So an example of that might be someone who's got, you know, 14 different tracking devices, a spreadsheet, you know, to track all of that different information. And they're spending hours a day, you know, with all of the data. I mean, this is an extreme case, but I've had patients in my practice that are like this. And instead of like going on a walk outside or doing their meditation practice, some, you know, something that would actually contribute to health, they're getting really wrapped up in all of the, the data and the metrics and things like that. And I think for some people who tend in that direction, it can be a real distraction. No, I think that's such a good point. I think recognizing your personality type and what helps you or hinders you is critically important. Now, I want to make sure that we talk about your new supplements because this ties into the nutrient density and, and some of the things that we've already identified what makes the Adapt Naturals so unique in, in the supplement industry and in the supplement space? Well, I think one of the main things is that it just comes out of my experience, 15 years of treating hundreds of patients and training thousands of healthcare practitioners in more than 50 countries. That's real world laboratory where I got to learn some hard stuff. You know, like, as you know, Cynthia, because you work with people, like there's a big difference between our ideal you know, whatever idea that we have. And then when we, we, we test that idea with real people, it often turns out to be not what we thought it was going to be. Right. And so I, for many, many years, didn't start a supplement line because I didn't feel like I was ready. I didn't feel like I had the understanding and the knowledge from my real world experience to be able to form, you know, create products that were going to act that I wanted them to have. And after almost 15 years of doing this work, I finally did feel like I had gained enough knowledge and experience to do that. So I think that's number one and probably the most important difference for me is that I know that these products work because I've seen them work practice with lots of patients from lots of different backgrounds. And then also from feedback from the practitioners and other clinicians that I've trained over that period of time. The second is, which is related is you know, I'm using bioidentical, naturally occurring or food-based forms of the nutrients for all of, and I'm using the most absorbable, easiest to use, most effective forms of nutrients. So, you know, a few examples, we talked about folic acid before, you probably won't be surprised to learn that I'm not using folic acid in our multivitamin. For example, it has folate, if for B12, we have methylcobalamin instead of cyanocobalamin. For B6, we have P5P instead of pyridoxal. For B2, we have R5, you know, riboflavin. For selenium, we have seleno-XL, which is a yeast-based form of selenium that's far more bioavailable than, you know, the typical forms of selenium you see in multivitamins. For magnesium, we have a buffered chelate, which is bypassed route of intestinal absorption and is much better absorbed. So, you know, I could go on, but that's the general idea, the evidence-based best forms of all of the nutrients to maximize absorption so that people are actually getting 
what they pay for, you know, like so often people buy supplements and they're just going right through them to be, you know, I don't mean to be vivid about that, but a lot of the forms of nutrients in most supplements are not being absorbed and they're not being utilized. So you're literally throwing money away. And that's just painful for me because it's relatively, again, it's, it's, it's not a sequel relatively, you can do the research and you can find out which of these nutrients uh, forms of the nutrients are best absorbed. And that's what we've done. That's amazing. And how many products are in your new line right now? We have five right now, and it's actually designed as a daily stack to be taken every day. And there's, so there's a, a multivitamin, but it's a, you know, I would refer to it as an ancestral multi because it's built to mimic the nutrient intakes that our ancestors would have had on a typical ancestral pre-industrial diet before all of the challenges that we're facing arose. And so it's not just the essential vitamins and minerals in the bioidentical forms that I just mentioned. It's also phytonutrients that we would have gotten consumed because our ancestors ate way more plants than we do today and a broader variety of plants. So we have carotenoids and bioflavonoids and lignans and beta-glucans, which is a, a unique type of soluble fiber and, you know, a whole bunch of different phytonutrients. So it's almost a multi and a reds and a greens powder all in one supplement. And then we have an organ product, which again, if anyone's followed my work for any length of time, they're not going to be surprised by that. Organ meats are the most nutrient dense ounce for ounce. And there was actually a new study published in March by Ty Beal and Flaminia Ortenzi, who, are, who work for a global NGO that's concerned with ending malnutrition. So they went into this research trying to answer the question, where can we get the biggest bang for our buck from foods so that we can make these foods available to people who are starving you know, in the developing world and, and address this malnutrition problem? This was the first study that was ever done, to my knowledge, uh, and they mentioned that in their study, so I'm pretty sure it's true, that took bioavailability into account. All the previous studies that have been done on, on nutrient density did not consider bioavailability because a lot of the databases that researchers had to draw from didn't include that, but I, that's changed recently. So when bioavailability is taken into account, or is top seven foods that we can eat. So liver, spleen, and kidney are four of the seven most nutrient-dense foods that we can eat. The other three are dark leafy greens, small dried fish, and bivalves, so like oysters. And it's not even close, Cynthia. Like if you look at the scale that they publish in their study, the difference between liver, for example, and chicken is, you know, liver at a score of 11, and which is the lower is higher and, and on this scale, and chicken score was 1100. So we're talking about orders of magnitude difference in nutrient density. The problem is eats organ meats. You know, I've been beating this drum for so many years and most people just don't eat organ meats. They just won't do it. And I've learned this in my practice from hundreds of patients. And to be honest, I don't love them myself. I know how good they are for me and I struggle to eat them, but you know, I'm not always successful. And so I wanted to make an organ you know, supplement 100% grass-fed, free-range cattle from New Zealand, very clean source. And it's got liver, kidney, spleen, the four of the top seven, and then pancreas, which are very nutrient-dense organ meat. And then there's a mushroom product, which I've become fascinated with mushrooms over the past 
10 years. I'm trained as an herbalist as well. And there's been a long history of use of mushrooms in many traditional systems of medicine for over 5,000 years. And we now know from modern research that they're pretty incredible. You know, they have beta-glucans, which stimulate and regulate immune function, and they've got terpenoid compounds that are similar to what you find in cannabis plant and essential oils and effects on brain health and cognitive function and overall health and well-being. And then a tocotrienol product and magnesium. But people can learn more at adoptnaturals.com. But the whole point of this, Cynthia, was like for many years I thought, like, what the most people need that they aren't getting enough of. Of course, as we've been talking about the whole show, like there's no one size fits all approach. Each person is going to have slightly different needs. But at the same time, going back to the example I made of like big gulps and cheese doodles aren't good for anybody. There are some things that are pretty good for everybody. And based on the statistics, some of which I shared earlier, we know that most people are not getting enough of, you know, of certain nutrients. So I built the bundle to basically be layered on top of a healthy diet and lifestyle to give that extra insurance policy that people are not only meeting the inadequate RDA, but they're exceeding it. And they're getting the optimal amount of each of these different nutrients that then work together synergistically because of that nutrient synergy we talked about to support health and well-being, kind of no matter where somebody's starting from is already pretty healthy and they just want to level up their performance, that will help. And has, you know, chronic disease and is struggling, then it can help too. So that was kind of the intention behind creating this daily stack. Well, I think it's really exciting. And I love that you put so much thought and effort into selecting items that people and even yourself struggle with consuming. And for full disclosure, I struggle with organ meats as well. Although my mother fed them to us when we were kids Ooh, and we thought you. my mom, my mom is Italian and, you know, liver and onions was, or liver and bacon was a regular meal for us. With that being said, I want to be respectful of your time. Please let listeners know how to connect with you, how to get access to your new supplements, your amazing podcaster, which I am grateful I've been a part of that as well. And your proliferative website, there's so much information, so many articles, all very scientifically based and research backed. How do they connect with you outside of the podcast? Great. And yeah, thank you, Cynthia. It was a pleasure to have you on my show. I hope everyone gets to listen to that episode. Yeah. My general website is chriscresser.com and as you point out, we have tons and tons of free content, thousands of articles from the last 15 years, and then a podcast and an email newsletter where I share all of the most recent research that I'm doing and uh, you know YouTube videos and all that good stuff. And then the supplement at naturals.com and the bundle that we were talking about, the daily stack is called the Core Plus Bundle. It's pretty easy to find there. And yeah, I just want to thank you uh, for having me on the show and doing all the great work you're doing. I, I really believe that, you know, helping people to, to optimize their nutrition as you do and, and really like dial it in based on their own unique circumstances and goals is probably the important steps that we can take to improve our health and prevent disease. So thanks for doing that good work. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you again for your time. Thank you. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 